and the telephone rang and um, the telephone rang and um, we were there soliciting a gift. I'm sure. I'm sure we were soliciting a gift, but the telephone rang and it rang again. And I think my executive director, my, my, you know, my, my boss at the time, um, I think she said something to the woman to the, to sort of say, you know, politely, if you, she wanted to answer the phone and the woman's comment was that, there's no reason for me to answer it. They're only calling for money. Welcome back to One Visit Away with your host, Kevin Fitzpatrick. This show focuses on true stories of philanthropy in order to understand what it takes to succeed in major gift fundraising. Listen to these stories and you'll realize you're just one visit away from a transformational experience for your benefactors and your organization. In this week's episode, I speak with Jason Lewis, the founder of Responsive Fundraising. If you guys are professional fundraisers, you most likely have heard of Jason Lewis at this point. Uh, he has he wrote a book called The War for Fundraising Talent. That was my one of my first exposures to Jason. He has a very successful podcast called The Fundraising Talent Podcast. I was just a guest on that, and I think... The episode with me will air within the next month or so. Uh, but Jason has a huge following on LinkedIn and is doing a lot of great work helping nonprofits be more successful with their fundraising. You can go check them out at responsivefundraising.com. And uh, many of you have, you might have even heard dozens of episodes of Jason's podcast, but this I think will give you uh, kind of a new side of him as he tells some of the, his favorite stories from his career. So I hope you enjoyed this great conversation with Jason Lewis. Well, welcome to One Visit Away, Jason. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. And I'm glad I had you on the podcast recently as well. So I'm glad we're talking again. And I love this platform you're using. So pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, it's good stuff. Well, tell everybody uh, briefly who you are and what you do. So my name's Jason Lewis. I am the founder of Responsive Fundraising. Um, I have 25 years in the fundraising space. I, I sort of see myself as one of those last individuals who describe ourselves as coming through the back door. Um, a lot of what I tend to find is that a lot of people are coming into the profession a lot more deliberately with a little bit more intention and, um, and with a le uh, less loyalties uh, that hinge on, say, PR and marketing and so forth. I teach at my local college in the social entrepreneurship and nonprofit management program and um, wrote a book about two years ago that really helped me establish a pretty significant platform to with which to launch my, my own podcast. Uh, the War for Fundraising Talent did really well. Currently working on my second book um, that should be out in early 2021. That's awesome. Yeah, Jason, for those of you who don't know, Jason is very well known in the in the fundraising world. If you're if you're on LinkedIn, you know, you've certainly come across him. I've read read his book and and it's all great stuff. I would say my my impression of you, we haven't talked too much is that you uh approach fundraising from uh more so than most people I'd say kind of an intellectual approach and and that kind of makes sense i i find that you you're always commenting on studies and even when we were on your podcast you were talking about research done in other countries and uh <laughs> so would would you say that's a, an accurate at least part of your uh approach um, to this i think um uh 
I think fundraising is lacking. I think fundraising is, I oftentimes say that it's in its messy adolescence and to be in your messy adolescence. So if we think about fundraising collectively, like as a professional group, if we all represented sort of this human being, we're a 16 or seven, we're a 16 or 17 year old stubborn kid who doesn't want to grow up. (laughs) Um, And I think sort of what you're getting at and a lot of what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to bring a more interdisciplinary sort of perspective into a profession that has largely found itself hinged on PR and marketing. And I think we need to stop thinking about fundraising through the lens of um, as if we're, as if donors are nothing more than consumers. Um, And I want, and I want organizations and I want fundraisers. I think fundraisers need to think more critically and carefully about what they're doing and if they do that, sort of along the lines of the, the writing that I've done and the writing I'll continue to do, um, I think we'll end up having a greater impact. You know, you think about the dismal turnover rates and attrition rates in the in the profession. And I think if you correlate that with sort of where we are as a profession and then you, and then you sort of originate that with the idea that we're sort of rooted in this PR and marketing thing, um, it starts to all sort of, you can connect the dots. So yeah, you didn't, you didn't want too much of that. I know you're not a, you're not, it's not a theory show. We're going to talk stories and I've got, I certainly have, um, this will be a good, this will be a good opportunity for me, Kevin, for me to, uh, to demonstrate my not so theoretical, um, side. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things I love about the podcast, especially with, with uh, guys like you is I think this is uh, an opportunity to see a side of whether it's consultants or fundraisers that most people don't don't normally see. So let's jump right into it. And uh, what would you like to start us off with, Jason? So you want me to tell a story, right? That's how I this do. works. Give me give me the uh, give me the lay of the land real quick. Remind me exactly because I've got I've got some stories in mind, but I want to make sure I follow the rules. There are no rules except uh, <laughs> okay. don't hold back. Just we we, we want to know, you know, a s- stories of visits. What happened? How'd you meet them? What'd you talk about? Uh, just the the nitty gritty of what does real major gift fundraising look like on the front lines? Okay, so that's helpful. That's a um, so I think the most Kevin. I think the most profound experience I had. So I live in a I live in York, Pennsylvania. Anybody who's listening locally will probably know the family that I'm referring to, but I she she will remain nameless. Um, um, a number of years ago, I was working on the with my last employer. I was working on a capital campaign and. Um, and my executive director and I, I was the chief development officer. The executive director and I were meeting with perhaps the wealthiest individual in our community or one of the wealthiest individuals in our community in her beautiful home. Um, and the telephone rang and um, the telephone rang and um we were there soliciting a gift. I'm sure. I'm sure we were soliciting a gift, but the telephone rang and it rang again. And I think my executive director, my, my, you know, my, my boss at the time, um, I think she said something to the woman to the, to sort of say, you know, politely, if you, she wanted to answer the phone and the woman's comment was that there's no reason for me to answer it. They're only calling for money. Hmm. And that was a pretty profound moment for me when I realized that her here she is sitting with a fundraiser, professional fundraiser, and 
the executive director of a, a noteworthy organization in our community, um, wh- whom she had built a meaningful relationship with. And we were doing our job really well, and we cared about this individual, and we knew that she cared about us. But what she was sort of subtly saying to me or to us is that her world is just this sort of this constant barrage of requests. And I thought, how do we, how do we as fundraisers sort of honor these individuals for whom fundraising does, we're going to exchange gifts with these people. That's part of what we do. Um, But do we necessarily have to do it in such a way that, uh, that's just completely insensitive and lacks an awareness that she's constantly getting telephone calls asking for money. Um, and, um, you know, if I saw this woman at the local super supermarket, she, she, her family attends the same uh, parish that we do, for example. Um, I don't solicit money locally, don't represent any local clients right now. So it's kind of been a pleasure for me to build a relationship with this woman and her, the rest of her family <clears throat> in these le- recent years, because I don't have to solicit her for money. Um, yeah. but I think that's, you know, that's probably the first story. Uh, there, there's a similar story that sort of hinges on that same, that same sort of in our community, we have a sort of a league of donors. I, I, I oftentimes refer to them as sort of our lucky list of 10 or 12 donors who basically drive any major capital campaign that comes to yeah. town. Um, and uh, I remember being in his, I remember being in his kitchen with him, his family, he, he, he and his wife were hosting a sort of one of these typical capital campaign donor gatherings in his private home. Um, and him and I managed to, we were in the kitchen together for some reason, um, just him and I, and I made this request. I asked him, I said, uh, I, and again, I won't name his name, but anybody who's from our community knows who I'm talking about. But I asked him, I was asking him the question of, you know, essentially in exchange for this contribution that you're making to our organization, where would you like us to sort of what, where, where on the building, this new building that we're building, would you like us to put your name? Yeah. And his, his very sharp remark was give it to somebody else. Mm. Um, and, and I thought about that and thought about it again and have often thought um, this gentleman's name is on all sorts of buildings all over this community. And quite frankly, in exchange, I mean, this gentleman was giving us a million bucks, but he had been sold so many different buildings, <laughs> you know, figuratively speaking, he had, he had been, he, his name is on, you know, that the college that I teach at is his, his name's all over the campus. At some point we have to recognize that our donors Selling them their name, selling them the opportunity to put their name on a side of a building, it eventually becomes very shallow, and it's no different than selling them a tote bag. Um, yeah. You know, and and I think that's the so you you know you 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 started off with the idea that I'm a you know I'm a deep thinking sort of guy. That's the that's the type of story that I think we need to be paying attention to because I think fundraisers, if they really think about it, they run into those situations all the time whether it be with that gentleman or the, or the woman who got the phone call and and said, you know, the only thing they want is money. Um, I get phone calls all the time uh, from all sorts of people, but they're not calling me trying to sell me something. I mean, perhaps occasionally they're telemarketers, but I don't live in that world. And I think we need to be a little more sensitive to that. These, these are very affluent people. Um, 
they've got all their needs met, but we need to, um, we need to care for and steward these relationships in, in honorable ways, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I love both of those stories and I'm going to, I'm going to tell a story. I, Please I do. think I've shared, uh, yeah. So one thing I'll also interject some of my stories to, uh, to further a point. Um, there's someone I, I heard of this from someone in the know at a university that, uh, there was a gentleman extraordinarily wealthy. This guy, he, he has built some big time businesses and he is an alum of, of said university mm-hmm. and the development team asked this guy for a, uh, multi-million dollar gift, uh, for this, this building they were working on. And they said, you know, and they said something like, you know, and if you give this gift, we're going to put your name, you know, right on the front of this building. Right. And his response was, no, uh, I'm not going to give the gift. I have the money and I would have given you the gift, but the fact that you know so little about me right. to not know that that is the last thing in the world I would yeah. ever want yeah. uh, makes me realize that I don't, I, I'm not comfortable giving you that much money. And so, and so the interesting thing is it, it comes back to your, to your story is we need to find out from our benefactors what's important to you. Like instead of where would you like your name on the building? Would you like your name on the building? Is that something that excites you about? Yeah. And, and then that leads to, you know, much be better being able to serve our, our donors. Yeah. I said, I was working on a, you know, you're in Texas, uh, not, I was working on a campaign and in, in Fort Worth for a while. Um, and, uh, I remember the client got really up in arms, the client being the the board and the executive got really up in arms. We were going to solicit this gift for, it must've been a million and a half. It was a lead gift on their current capital campaign. Anyway, so I'm working on this campaign and this organization was all up in arms about the fact that this gentleman, perhaps when we, when, when, when my client and I went over to solicit this gift, he may want to put his name on the side of the new building. And this organization was a religious organization that was opposed to putting names on buildings. And I was very much aware of that that's not an uncommon thing. A lot of uh, faith-based organizations sort of shy away from putting names. Some of them do. Yeah. Some of them don't have any qualms about it. Um, but, um, Long story short, we went over, solicited this gift, successfully secured the gift. My client did. Um, And the idea of putting the the idea of putting their family name on the side of a building never came up. It, It never it never entered into the conversation. And so I think I think what that particular scenario speaks to um I mean, we're talking about having had a board meeting probably, uh, you know, weeks earlier where 10 or 12 people who all have professional lives. These are all, you know, uh, you know, influential, you know, professional people in the in the Fort Worth community. They're sitting around a table for more than an hour bantering over what are we going to do if this gentleman, you know, so the, the, the stewarding of their time on the on the notion that somebody might want to put their you know name on the side of a building only to go find out that this gentleman had no interest in that. Yeah. Um, what it speaks to is this, this hesitancy that we have in our line of work where we're always trying to have everything figured out, everything predicted before we just sit down and have, 
have lunch with the fella. Yes. Just take the guy out to lunch and don't feel like you got to do the, get it all, you know, predicted and efficient and timely. Just do some information gathering. We call it, uh, what do we call it? Um, discovery. Discovery. Yeah. Yeah. Discovery. Um, yeah, you see the thing is you call it that when you when you assign it a name like that, you sort of remove the humanity of you and I just getting on the phone or sitting across the lunch. You, you turn it into a a, a mechanism, a, a, a technique. Yeah. Um, perhaps we just perhaps we just need this. And I remember saying to these people repeatedly, look, let's just go over there, have lunch with him, find out and quit worrying yes. about it. Yes. Um the, the fortunate thing is, is that any client who does that type of work with, you know, anybody who's engaged in that process, and my client is certainly a great example of that, um, he will not, he, the executive director, will not panic over the same question ever again. He had to learn that. He had to go through that process of finding out that no, all donors are not interested in putting the names on the side of a building and and yes, getting to the lunch table is in fact critically important, if not the most important part of the process. If you're going to expect a meaningful meaningful gift, um, yeah, yeah, but that's exactly it. And everybody, there's uh, we're probably going to get some some new listeners with Jason being a guest, and so go check out episode 22. It's one of the most recent ones. It's it's a story that. I just shared it, uh, a solo episode, and uh, it, it addresses this exact point. The first time I prepared for a million-dollar ask, I put so much thought and worry and planning into it. Mm. And, uh, I, I mean, literally weeks of just, like, mm. fret and anxiety. Yep. And then I get into the guy's office, and, <laughs> and basically uh, – it was not even within the realm of discussion and it was just a complete waste of, of so much time and effort. So exactly what Jason's saying is just go out and talk to people first and then through the process of getting to know them, if you learn that a gift of that size is something that, you know, could be entertained, then maybe put some thought into it. It's so much better that you go see a hundred people uh, with almost no preparation than it is that you see one person with yeah. two months of prep. So yeah. just get out and see people so, it's, it's where all the good stuff happens. So you're going to hate me for this. Cause I'm going to have to reference a book that I'm reading. Um, but uh, no, please. Th- there, there's something that we do. Uh, there's something that we do in fundraising uh, that psychologists call, um, they call them wicked, wicked environments. Um, versus kind environments and kind environments are those places where we can learn and learn really well. And oftentimes, for example, the, the author refers to like the tennis court and the, um, a lot of, lot of sports athletics create kind environments because you're being observed and you're being coached. And consequently you can get feedback, you can get it quickly and you can learn from your movements and your behavior and those sorts of things. Wicked environments are much more complex and you don't get a lot of feedback. And so to, to bring on to the, to to bring, so I learned, uh, so I think a lot of fundraisers are out, you know, moving around the country, doing these calls as, as major gifts officers do in these wicked environments where they're not getting a lot of feedback very quickly. They don't really know how well they're doing because they're working largely solo without a colleague, without a boss along with them, very isolated. 
And the only people that could perhaps give them any feedback is the donor on the other side of the table. And, and those people are generally the most polite and forgiving yeah. of all people. Um, but but to, to, to share a couple of more stories. So my boss and I, when I was at the Epilepsy Foundation in Washington, my boss and I, I was in my first major gift role. And Danielle was in her first role supervising major gift officers. Mm-hmm. And we would travel back and forth to New York City uh, routinely together. Uh, and, and this is where this idea of a, a wicked versus a kind environment sort of comes up. So we were creating a very kind environment for me to learn and her to learn um, from the way in which we were doing our work because because essentially we were being observed by each other. So she was seeing yeah. how I did my job and, and I saw how she did her job. And we met with this couple um so every major gift officer gets this experience. I hope they do. Um, at some point they go to a place like, you know, Madison Avenue and they end up in a, you know, fifth or sixth floor penthouse, you know, uh, a big, it wasn't a penthouse, but it was a very large apartment on Madison Avenue with a very affluent family. And it's sort of like completely new world for me. Right. Yeah. For a guy yeah. like you from Texas, it's a completely different world, for yeah. you too. but you've been there, right. You're in this place that's completely, um, alien to any place you've ever been. And I remember sitting, Danielle and I went and met with this couple and we're doing this, you know, we had this presentation and these, these proposals and we're sitting there pre- uh, presenting. And at one point the gentleman just told Danielle and I to sit back and relax. Yes. He just said, chill out. Right? <laughs> <laughs> About 20 minutes into our, I mean, we had probably, I mean, this is, Again, this is very wealthy affluence, you know, uh, Madison Avenue, Fifth Avenue, um, uh, you know, just completely. I, I, I can't even think of this guy had to him and his wife. I, I don't even remember what they did, but you can you have to do amazing things to live on Madison Avenue. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, and uh, so we're sitting there and he just says, look, why don't you guys chill out? And the lesson that I, I remember Danielle, Danielle and I got back in the car. Um, a couple of weeks later, we closed a, I remember we closed a $50,000 gift with this guy. So him and his wife were very generous to what it is we were doing. Yeah. But I remember when, when Danielle and I got in the cab all the way home, we sort of bantered over this idea of um, whether passion whether passion or professionalism sort of needs to sort of take a front seat in fundraising and passion was, and that's probably the wrong word, but passion was just sort of that being real, being real authentic, you know, rather than just being crisp and professional and clean and straight shooters and all that. And, you know, just being real was sort of what we were, what the conclusion we came to. And I don't remember which side of that debate Danielle and I were on, but at the end of the day, we, we really, I think we both learned that at some point you've got to, you've got to knock on that door. You got to sit down in their living room and you got to kind of chill out. Um, yes. You're sitting on that couch, right? You, you can imagine it. You're sitting on this couch. You're looking around and you're thinking, man, what does this place cost? You know, yeah. how much does this, how much does this, 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 so, the sofa cost? How much did you pay for this thing? All that kind of stuff. <laughs> Just completely different world. Um, yeah. And this guy's like, man, just sit back and relax. Yes. And we were probably there another hour. Um, but we make it, we, one of the things we do when, when we, when we don't chill out is we, 
we sort of take away their humanity. So they're super wealthy people who have all this power and influence and stuff. But at the end of the day, they're just human beings. Um, And they have, they've been treated their whole lives with like, they have power and money. And if you get the pleasure of sitting in their living room, perhaps you can just sort of sit across the table from them at like a peer as much as you can. Granted, this gentleman had a lot more power and control and influence than I'll ever have. But, but, Maybe we need to sort of conjure up the confidence to just sort of sit across the table from these people um, and chill out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, th- that's it. I love that he just told you all that. Like, he did. Relax. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and- relax. I, I want to. I mean, he, he probably didn't say chill out, but he I, he told us to relax. And, yeah. You know, some people and, get and- some people get, you know, if, if I tell my wife to relax, she's going to get offended. She's like. You know, the hell with you. She's going to tell you no way. And, you know, that's just not yeah. something that you. But he knew he knew in his posture he could tell us that. But he said, relax. Yeah, and it made for, yeah. for meeting. Yeah. And I think one thing for people to remember is a lot of times you're visiting with this person at this point in their life. But, you know, one thing in uh, I mean, there's a bunch there's Dave Ramsey recently had a book come out on this and the millionaire next door you know, confirms this. Oh man. Good to wrong, know you read that. I love that. Of course. Of course. So, so if anyone doesn't know, uh, everyday millionaires, Dave Ramsey's team did an update on that. They did. Oh, they surveyed 10, 10,000 millionaires, the largest study of millionaires in North America. 90% of millionaires in North America are first generation wealthy. Um, and so, most of these people that you're going to sit with who might give a $50,000, $100,000 million gift, nine out of 10 of them, uh, they didn't grow up like that. Right. So right. they com- it's not just because somebody like this one guy I met with, you know, going to lunch in his almost $400,000 Rolls Royce, he grew up uh, in, you know, a, 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 <laughs> a bad neighborhood. and. Yep. Could never even dream of of that level of wealth. And, and that's only, you know, 40, 30, 40 years in his past. So it's not like it, it's not like they don't know what it's like to just be a, a regular Joe and, you know, hit up the local diner. So <laughs> so that gentleman that. Uh, so we have felt our family has felt very uh, blessed to have, uh, after, after I left that job in Washington, DC, we moved to a community that's about 65 miles, hundred miles North of Washington, DC. We've been here for 12 years and we've become a part of this, um, small community that, uh, that, that I was able to participate in that large capital campaign at the very beginning of, for example. Um, but we've been members of uh, a season ticket. We, there's a minor league ballpark, and yeah. um, and that gentleman that I referenced earlier where he told me, you know, you can put you can give some you can let somebody else put their name on the side of that building. He, he, he died a couple of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. But for about six or seven years, my family and him and his wife shared a row of seats at the ballpark. Um, mm-hmm. And we bought the same cheap hot dogs on Sundays. Yeah. And, you know, we were j- and he gave my kids uh, one of the things that, you know, if if my kids refer to uh to mr and mrs appel they're going to refer they're going to remember the uh his wife always gave my children at the ballpark um uh swedish fish 
the little candies, yeah. little red candies. <laughs> so they don't think of this family as this super rich, you know, wealthy. Right. They just think of the, oh, that's the that's that older couple that sat next to mom and dad at the ballpark for for six or eight years before Mister Appel died. Um, and so that's giving, in some ways, that memory that 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 sort of memory that my children will have of of Mister and Mrs. Appel is based on their humanity of them just being real human beings who really loved baseball like their dad does and knew how to sit at a baseball game and, 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 and eat cheap hot dogs. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he did, and, and Mr. Appel did not have to pull, you know, he, he inherited wealth and he was a very hardworking businessman as, as is his wife. Uh, she's a businesswoman. Um, he, you know, he's probably not the guy that you have to describe as sort of having come from, you know, he came from wealth. Uh, he did not have to pull himself up by his bootstraps. He inherited some really nice bootstraps. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I think that's what, I think that's what some of these stories, I think that's why some of these stories are particularly helpful. And I'm, and I'm guessing that's why this is why your podcast could become particularly popular is because I think there's a generation of, like we started with, I think there's a generation of fundraisers out there who are perhaps listening to people like yourself and myself and thinking this could be much more meaningful work than what it historically has been, but it perhaps needs to be a little bit more closer to the donor and it needs to be more engaging. Um, you know, time, time period of COVID and stuff, we're going to have to learn how to be on platforms like this and have meaningful conversations. But you and I have, have now just finished our second conversation and we know each other better than we did, you know, three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, there's no reason we can't use similar technologies to do this with our donors. Um, but if, but if we don't know and understand if, if you're a, if you're in direct response or if you're an event planner and you've never actually sat down at the lunch table with the donor, you're lacking a certain level of awareness in how you might orchestrate that appeal letter or that plan, that event. Um, yeah. I'm not anti any of those things, but I think those things need to be informed by a genuine um, familiarity with, with what it means for someone to say like that, like, like, like the woman who said every time that phone rings, it's somebody asking for money. Um, You know? Yeah. And, and that's, so just tying a few things in together, that's what we do not ever want to happen with our benefactors. We do not want, uh, you know, Bob and Sue uh, to know when when the phone rings and it shows Jason Lewis on the caller mm-hmm. ID, better not answer it because he's here to ask for money. Yeah. You know, we, we we want that uh, we sit at the at the ball game and get the cheap hot dogs together. It, it yeah. reminds me of one of our uh, a guy that I visit with in in another city who. He's he's he grew up poor, uh, raised by a single mom, and he's he's got quite a bit of money now. I mean, he was telling me about the the new house he was looking at purchasing. He's like, you know, I don't know if I want to be in this particular city because the property taxes are going to be like fifty thousand a year, and I'm just like, what? Like, how is that even possible? Yet at the same mm-hmm. time we go to lunch and he takes me to the, the fast food hot dog joint and that's, that's his go-to spot. And and so we want to develop those relationships where we know about, you know, what are the, what are the places they like to eat? What are the sports they like to watch? And then 
once we have that that familiar bond, uh, when the timing is right and we ask them for a meaningful gift for something they care about that we know is within their capacity, that's when that's when yeses happen enthusiastically and and philanthropy occurs and it's a yeah. There's thing. a there's a uh, I'll, I'll share because you're because you're in Texas <laughs> and because you talked about how because we've been talking about cheap hot dogs. So I was working on a capital campaign in um, in Houston, and uh, I was playing sort of an interim. Basically, I was doing a lot of soliciting on behalf of my client. Um, yeah. So I was in more of a contracted sort of major gift role. And I flew up to Dallas. The uh, you know I, I was there all week, and I flew up to Dallas on probably a Thursday night and met with this gentleman in Dallas to secure a, a, a pledge for that capital campaign. I want to say it was about a hundred fifty thousand dollar gift, but we we met at a Burger King. You know, he, yes. he did not yes. want me to. He did not want. He, he th- this was just a. Um, <laughs> You know, if I would have suggested some fancy place, he probably would have been offended. Yeah. Um, and I remember sitting there. Uh, I, I think what those sorts of experiences prove for people who do our type of work um, is you always have to be on your toes and you have to be completely ready to adapt. That's one of the reasons that one that one study that I really appreciate, the Curious Chameleon study, you have to be perfectly comfortable sitting in a Burger King on a Friday morning at six 30 in the morning with a gentleman who's, you know, wearing his Texas boots and his blue jeans. And I, you yeah. know, he might've had a t-shirt on, I don't know, but at the same time, he's perfectly capable, perfectly capable of writing a $150,000 gift. I mean, yeah. so all of your assumptions that you might have working in Texas, I had a business partner for a couple of years in Texas. And so I was working on a number of projects and I had coming from the mid Atlantic um, where people don't walk around with boots on all the time. Um, you know, I would make these preconceived sort of assumptions about what it means or what it doesn't mean to wear boots um, or what it means to show up at the you know lunch table, dinner table in a pair of blue jeans. Well, if you live in yeah. Texas, a lot of people in Texas show up in jeans and boots everywhere. Right. I mean, you know, that's just what Texas is. And so some of those boots cost uh, five times as much as your suit. (laughs) Exactly. And I wouldn't have known any better. And so you just have to be, you have to know what your job is. You have to genuinely care. You have to show up showing up, I think is the hardest part for our work. Um, I think if you want to get theoretical and you want to talk about the psychology of what we do, I think there's so many things that we do in this space that prevent us from getting to those lunch tables, which is why, again, you're, I think your show is really onto something here, just constantly pushing the, pushing out the message that, you know, if you really want to raise some money in very meaningful ways, regardless of how much money it is, um, get to the lunch table, do it in person, develop the confidence to sit across the table from somebody that perhaps lives in a world that you don't understand. Um, I don't think I've ever, Kevin, have you, I'll ask you a question. Have you heard, have you talked to many of your guests where the, where these things go sour? I don't think, (laughs) I don't think I've ever had an instance and I'm not, and I'm not, I'm not BSing here. I don't think I've had too many instances where these meetings go South yeah, it's it's very rare. So I 
I mean, sometimes you don't get your way. Something, you know, they they'll tell you no. But other than that, I mean, these aren't scary places once you get comfortable with it. Yeah. So one of the things I ask people uh, frequently is: there ever a time you ask someone for a gift and they got upset at you because you asked for too much? And it's, I think there was. Maybe there was one person who told me yes, but most of the time, even, I mean, one of my favorite guests, my my friend Val, she, she asked for this gift one time that was just like way, 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 way too much, like a hundred times too much. And the people just started laughing, you know, like that's the most common response is, but the number of times that you visit with somebody and have a negative experience is one out of a thousand Unless yeah. you just are horrifically rude and do something insanely stupid. Stupid, yeah. yeah. Well, and that gets back to that idea of wicked versus kind environments. I think too many of us are working in these what what psychologists would call wicked environments, which is to say that even when we are perhaps messing up or screwing up, there's not a lot of there, there's not a lot of process. There's not a, there's not a lot of thought being built into the process. Um, for all yeah. of our consulting clients, we we want we want fifty percent of these meetings that you're talking about to be done in teams. And so, for example, if I mm-hmm. if I was coaching a development officer, I'm saying I want half of your meetings to be done in teams. I don't care if that's another development officer, or your boss, or a board member, or another member of the staff. Um, and I only want and I only want solicitations to happen when you're with someone else. So I don't want solicitations mm-hmm. being done solo. Um, and and I think if we started to raise the bar as fundraisers on on having these meetings done in much more kind environments where our work can be watched, I think we'd get people more excited about this work. Yeah, uh, it's very lonely. I mean, think about it, Kevin. You you've done this enough. How many times have you been out on the road making a solicitation? I've I've asked for million dollar gifts at seven thirty in the evening and had to go back to a lonely hotel room. Um, oh, yeah. I, I don't want to go to the bar, um, <laughs> but I want to celebrate. Right. I just asked for a million dollar gift on behalf of my employer and I don't and I'm all by myself. Um, I think it can be very lonely work. Um, and I yeah. think our, our boards and our bosses, I don't think this is something that our, our our fundraisers need to be thinking critically about. I think our I think our boards and our bosses need to be thinking about that. If you're going to send somebody across the country to ask for a million bucks, have and, and and when you do that, generally speaking, you know that you're going to get that. Have the decency to send two people so that those people can, you know, can work together and make that happen together. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. So I have, yeah, my, my and most of my career, uh, I have been in an office in Dallas by myself. I go there. I'm the only person I make my calls. I go on my visits and, and that's it. And there's a handful of times out of the, I've been on over a thousand visits in my career and it's way less than 10% of them are with, with another person. And one day, but some, some of these days that live on in my mind, I, I just remembered one when you're talking about this, one of my my colleagues, Brett, he and I went down to Houston for a day and we had three awesome visits. One of them with a guy who uh, you were talking about, uh, similar thing. He told me he gets about 20 to 25 
calls every day. People reaching out to ask him Asking for money. For money. Yeah. You know, big, big name, lots of money, lots of family money. And so we had these great visits. And then once the day was done, uh, Brett and I, we just went to, we were downtown Houston finishing up this visit. We're just walking around and we see this, this sushi bar that had yeah. happy hour going yeah. on. You know, we, we just sat down, had dinner did. together. And it, it was just, it just felt good. It was like, I, I don't get this frequently. <laughs> I have, I have had the opposite experience. I have done the majority of now, a lot of it is because, especially in, in recent years is because I have built my consultancy around this sort of methodology. Um, but um, I think you need, I think we need to have the benefit of doing these major solicitations in teams. Otherwise we're, 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 we're completely going blind. You know, um, I have a colleague who, who had to, had to teach her client how to shut up. You know, you think about, if you, if you're soliciting a gift at some point, you've just got to shut your mouth. Um, but it's only by doing that. That was hard advice that, he, and she, of course, she didn't tell the client this and, you know, with the donor there. But, you know, we had to tell this guy, look, man, you can't con- consume the whole conversation, you know, zip your lip. Yeah. Yeah. That That is one of the most difficult things <laughs> for people to learn is uh, less is more. And uh, yes. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Th- th- I mean, y- you've got to have. Fortunately, I have had. Uh, I, I think definitely at the beginning of my career, it would have been very helpful to have more oversight. Fortunately, I have had a decent number of, of visits with some highly skilled people who have watched me, which is tremendously valuable. Um, but yeah, I think that point of, you know, we we're very bad at knowing what happened in situations when we're the player involved. Like, you know, if you, if you get in a car crash, your uh, telling of the account, you know, 20 minutes later to the police is probably not what actually happened. Right. Um, and so having that third party there watching, being able to, to tell you like, this is where you screwed up. This is where you could have done better is extremely valuable for sure. Definitely. Definitely. So any uh, final stories you'd like to share, Jason? Um, just, it, it's, um, the, the one that I talk about at the beginning of my, my first book, uh, my meeting with Mr. Walters. So Mr. Walters was, uh, uh, probably the first, the, the first fundraising job I was in, um, this was 20, 20 plus years ago. Um, it was still, and, and this was the South Southwest corner of Virginia too. So, it wasn't terribly obtuse for me to just show up at, at somebody's home and knock on their door with a current donor. So I showed up unannounced. <laughs> um, and um, nowadays you wouldn't dare, you know, Yeah, that's, that's a bold but, move. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but in, in rural, in, in rural Southwest corner of Virginia, that's not terribly out yeah. of line, perhaps even today. Um, but I pulled up in the driveway and Mr. Mr. Walters was a World War II veteran that had a um, uh, prosthetic limb and those sorts of things. And uh, but anyway, just showing up, just showing up was sort of the best, 
probably the best. I don't know that I, for some reason I just showed up maybe because I could never get him on the telephone or, or whatever. But anyway, over a series of about 12 to 18 months, we started meeting about every quarter at a local, uh, local steakhouse, um, and, um, built a, you know, established a pretty meaningful relationship. It was not me establishing a relationship with Mr. Walters. It was Mr. Walters, you know, being able to establish a relationship with me as an agent to the institution. I always like to point that out. Um, we engaged other people. Uh, you know, my boss periodically joined me at that steakhouse uh, for meetings and stuff. But anyway, uh, to sort of bring this story to a close, I remember when Mr. Walters shows up uh, on Christmas, you know, the week before Christmas with this gift with his son. And, um, and he's got this beam, you know, this grin on his face. I, I want to say this gentleman was probably only giving us about $10,000. It was probably not the most extraordinary gift in the world, but it was extraordinary for him. Um, all that to say, doing this work, pull up in the driveway, you know, unannounced, get to know this gentleman. I think we stood in his driveway for forever, got to know each other, ended up starting having those dinner, you know, those lunch meetings, then shows up, you know, 12, 18 months later with this $10,000 check. And, and it, it was probably the most meaningful contribution he had ever been been given the opportunity to make, not because we asked for it, but because we had sort of, we had stewarded the relationship for several months, you know, yeah. 12, 18 months leading up to that. He had been given to us for years. Um, but the better we do this and the more time we invest in these relationships, the more meaningful the experience is for the donor. Um, and, and, uh, and, and that's, that's the one that I, I, I always remember probably first and foremost is that yeah. expression on his face and his son's face coming through that door with that check. It was probably a distribution or something that he needed to make, but it was very meaningful for him. And, and we certainly received it with as much gratitude as we could. Um, as much as we conjure up that day. So that was great. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I love those stories. It's all about the, the most meaningful gifts, you know, in my memory are the ones where it was a big deal for that person to make it, whether it's literally $20 or $20 million. Those it's just like, this is a lot of money to me. And I believe so strongly what you're doing that I'd rather your organization have it than me. And, and and I just appreciate you going out there and knocking on his door. Yeah, uh, you know, putting yourself. That, that, that's why people, in my mind, going back to the psychology, that's why people don't do major gifts. They don't want to do major gifts, is because it is the most likely way you're going to get punched in the nose, metaphorically speaking, in in fundraising. Um, and w when you show up at somebody's door, you are putting yourself out there in a way that you you could very well get rejected in a much more personal and hurtful way than when you send your email out to your subscribers. And so that's it, it's higher risk, but it's also much higher reward. And uh, everybody just go out there and schedule more visits and uh, get in front of people. That's what it's all about. Hey, this has been fun, Kevin. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Jason. Great having you on the show and look forward to talking soon. That was Jason Lewis with Responsive Fundraising. If you found this episode valuable, please subscribe to the show and leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to stay up to date on the show, you can like One Visit Away on Facebook or connect with me, Kevin Fitzpatrick, on LinkedIn. If you really want to help the show grow, 
please personally share this episode with other development professionals. I hope Jason's words have inspired you to schedule more visits. After all, you're just one visit away from helping a World War II vet give one of the most meaningful gifts of his life.